0: your inner armor. Welcome to the Inner Armor Podcast with Dr. Timothy Royer, where we explore ways to train our brains and bodies to become dynamically resilient so that we can all, from professional athletes to ordinary people, perform at our potential. Welcome back to the Inner Armor podcast. I'm here with Dr. Royer. It's
1: good to be with you, Greg. I love that last episode. If our listeners haven't listened to it, make sure they pick that one up. You bringing in those three movies, that was awesome. I love that thinking back
0: on those. Yeah, we were talking about the Come to Your Senses episode, which was the previous episode. Take a listen to that. In that episode, we were talking about these what-ifs and what-abouts that Dr. Royer talks about all the time. The... Ways that are very large, the very large frontal lobe in our brains with all of its folds is able to conceptualize, analyze, and build scenarios. And that, on the one hand, that's our strength because it allows us to put a man on the moon. But on the other hand, it also can become a little bit of a liability when it causes us to freeze or become paralyzed or become anxious and over And in the last episode, Dr. Royer was talking about ways to overcome that. But today, I want to go a little bit deeper. And we want to ask what happens when those what ifs and what abouts and become so exacerbated in us that they trip over some line and become almost clinical anxiety, or they actually do become clinical anxiety disorders. And Dr. Royer... In your career in neuropsychology, you have a clinical career spanning over three decades of treating patients, tens of thousands of patients with anxiety disorders. And we want to explore that a little bit. And just to set this up, I got a couple of stats that I pulled today, just to kind of emphasize the seriousness of this. First of all, Anxiety is the most common mental disorder in the United States, affecting 40 million adults. In a 2020 survey, 62% of respondents in the United States reported experiencing some degree of anxiety during the pre- previous six months. An estimated 31% of all adults will experience an anxiety disorder at some point in their life. Wow. of adults in America have had an anxiety disorder within the last year. Anxiety disorders are more prevalent in women than men. The majority of adults with anxiety have a mild impairment, but some have a serious impairment. I'm sure you'll talk about that. Nearly half of Americans report that they experience anxiety on a regular basis. 15 million adults have a social anxiety, 7.7 million adults have PTSD, 6.8 million adults have something called generalized anxiety disorder, which I'm sure you can address. Six million adults have panic attacks and panic disorders. It's really crazy. And what we see now is more and more growth in young adolescents and teens and young adults. So nearly 32% of adolescents between 13 and 18 have had an anxiety disorder within recent years. Of these adolescents, the 17 to 18-year-old age group was most affected. And generalized anxiety disorder was found to affect twice as many adults between ages 26 to 49 as compared to people over 50. So, We could go on and on and on, but there's something going on here. And the trends in these kinds of medical reports are that anxiety disorders are just accelerating out of control every year, getting more and more and more. So from your three decades of experience clinically in this, let me just throw this out to you. What is anxiety?
1: Yeah, so glad that we are doing this podcast today. It's a very sobering one when you think about how debilitating anxiety can be for people. I've had people refer to it in a lot of different ways, but one that kind of jumps out at me is a year old boy talking about when we are about to help him manage his anxiety and that it, he said, I always felt like I was in this prison cell that I was trapped in and there was no way to get out and now I have the key that I can open the door, and, uh, and that visual image of what that must be like for a child or middle schooler it's just overwhelming, really, a time when we should i mean, every time in our life we should be able to access happiness and peace, but especially I think as a child, you know. so you know the first thing we have to think about is getting the the language correct about what we're talking about because this happens when we're talking about these things is that they become very subjective, very hard to measure. What we do is we actually measure this through EEG technology to reading the cardiovascular system, leaning into the nervous system, and really getting objective quantifiable measures. Most of our treatment, diagnoses of the these different things, these anxiety disorders, really don't be, go beyond just identifying a certain behavior and if you meet certain criteria then you have this disorder right but really making it quantifiable is super important so as we start start the discussion we got to get some of our terms correct and you have fear which every living creature should have because there are things in the environment that you should fear fire uncontrolled you should fear you know animals chasing you you should fear there are things that are just naturally occurring that we all experience fear. The person that says that they don't experience fear is not aware of themselves. Because we all experience fear at some level.
0: Hey, hey Doc, but, can I can I just ask a question here about yeah. those kinds of fears, right? I mean obviously as you say, there's certain things I mean you're 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 not safe if you're not afraid. I don't want my I don't want my child walking close to the edge of the cliff or hiking, right? But I've read and you, you tell me i don't know if this is true or not that we're only born with a limited number of fears like if you take a an infant and right. i've heard that there's only a few things that an infant at six months or whatever naturally fears loud noises the, the feeling of falling but the the infant the one year old isn't necessarily afraid of heights because we're not born with a fear of heights we're born with an instinct of falling so you have to There's certain things you have to learn. I remember when I was in college and I was a lifeguard and I used to help teach swim classes and at the place I lifeguarded. And one of the things we do is teach these little infants, 18-month-year-olds, you know, two-year-olds to swim. And it was interesting because the older the kids got, the harder it was to teach them to swim because an 18-month-old or whatever little toddler isn't afraid of the water. Right. Right. The, The water feels natural to them. The The water, it's a learned fear. Um, they, right. I mean, is that true? And what, are there are certain things that are learned fears, and I, I think where that might go is that those are our phobias, where we learn some fears, and some of those are good, but some of them we overlearn them, maybe? Yeah, and if you don't know how to swim,
1: I sure hope you do fear the water, <laughs> right? I mean, so there's a certain skill development that also goes on in our lives that help us overcome fears and when we don't have those skills then we can be more fearful like learning to speak in public and and different things like that but there is that protective side to it and there's that learn side that comes with over time and the thing to realize is that this is kind of a continuum of thing it's not an on off button and in everybody's anxiety there's a little bit, and the anxiety is more worrying about the fear coming, okay? So that's what I wanted to distinguish, the second piece, okay? In our anxieties or our ruminations, obsessions, there's always a little bit of reality to that, right? So, you know, should I fear germs? Yeah, at some level, you know, I I should not be overexposing myself to germs but should I avoid daily activities that would be normal like relationships and work and hobbies and interests because of germs or deteriorate the skin on my hands to the point that it's just coming off the bone because I've been washing my hands so much now the fear which has some base of reality in it has become so much that you have this overlying anxiety that now you're hurting yourself with something that's real, but you're focusing more on the possibility than the probability that we've talked about before. But yes, it is a developmental thing. I gave you a long answer to probably, I could have said, yes, it's developmental, but there are things that we learn in every fear, every anxiety disorder, there is a little bit of truth to that. You know, the person that avoids chemicals and can't go into their kitchen or wash the sink because they are so scared of chemicals. Should we be scared of chemicals? Yeah. At some point, I shouldn't be, you know, chugging Clorox, right? But there's this reality, this probability that we bring in that becomes very important.
0: So there is that rational, you know, I mean, if I'm afraid of, I mean, I should be afraid of grizzly bears, but I can't afraid to go go to the park because a grizzly bear might attack me. And yeah, that's where phobias come in because they take a root in They take root in us, right? And some of these are learned. Some of these are exacerbated. But I want to explore what you said a moment ago. It's the fear about the fear. Yes. Right? So, So it's almost like when order removed, there's, I'm afraid of drowning or I'm afraid of the plane crashing. I'm afraid of germs. I'm afraid of grizzly bears. And those are all good things to be afraid of. But then I sort of step back from it and conceptualize that and become trapped in thinking about thinking about the grizzly bear. Right. Yes. And then that's the
1: third thing that comes into play. So you have your fear, which is innately in us, and some of that we develop. Then there's the anxiousness, which is what I would refer to as kind of anticipatory stress. And that's what if this happens, what if this happens, and then comes the avoidance, the avoiding the situation or finding ways to stay away from that thing to the point that it becomes problematic. So I'm going to give you a little story that'll kind of explain this. So a couple of years ago, my wife and I, Amy, we moved, uh, the kids are all grown now. So we, we left Michigan after 26 years, how we stayed there for 26 years. I'm not too sure. I love Michigan, but the winters are brutal, especially growing up in Tampa as a kid. So it's glad to move to south, southern, southeast Georgia to the coastal islands area. And down in southeast Georgia, we have something called the Okefenokee Swamp, okay? <laughs> yeah. Which I'm thinking, who wants to go visit a swamp? Well, if you're <laughs> ever within two or three hours of this place, You've got to go see it. I mean, it is absolutely gorgeous. Well, what the Okefenokee is known for is its beauty, but it also has a high abundance of alligators, right? Uh, alligators. So the the first eight times we were there, we went on this boat tour where you get on this flat bottom boat. It's fantastic, and you can see the gators, and they're you know, and you can also see all the wildlife, and everything's beautiful. Well, one time we were there and we noticed people out in kayaks and canoes and stuff. So my wife had this great idea that we're going to get a kayak for half a day and we're going to kayak the Okefenokee. And I'm like, okay. So we go do this and we get in this double kayak and it's, it's a four hour deal that we're you know, by ourselves. I don't know. Like they just let us go, right? Here's your paddles, your life vest and go. The swamp's only like four feet, six feet deep, so it's not like you're going to drown, but you've got these, I mean, thousands of gators out there, right? Interestingly enough, they report that they've never really had an incident with these gators in, you know, 50, 60 years, which is crazy with all the visitors there. So we go on this tour, long story, go on this tour, or we have a self-guided tour, and it's this big loop, okay? We've done three hours and 50 minutes Of a four hour loop. I can see. Where we're going to finish up. Which is about a half a mile away. Straight away. But at this moment in time. The river narrows. Or the canal that we're on. Narrows to about. Three to four feet. I'm going to say four feet. And you have to go through this four foot inlet. To access the rest of the river. That's normally about 30 feet wide. Sitting right at that little inlet is this gator that's about nine feet long and he's on this mud pile with his nose kind of hanging into this three or four foot inlet that we now have to pass through with our double kayak. Can you get the picture? Can you see (laughs) this thing? Yeah. I'm
0: I'm not, I'm not digging it. I mean, (laughs) no,
1: I mean, this guy's huge, right? And you're looking at it and I'm looking at the where we got to go and i'm thinking three hours and 50 minutes back the other direction to work around this gator they've told us the gators aren't going to bother us and we literally are going to have to come within six inches of this guy's nose okay (laughs) oh no right so we're in a double kayak amy's in the front she starts paddling you know pretty quickly and we get through the inlet and we get slightly stuck And I'm in the back. This gator's huge face and snout is literally, I'm not joking, it's six inches from touching the kayak right off of my left shoulder. And this guy has his eyes closed and all of a sudden he opens, those eyes roll back and he looks at me.
0: This is like a horror movie. Yes.
1: And Amy finally gets us unstuck and we take off. I mean... I I I almost peed my pants. I mean, I was so (laughs) oh, that's horrible, nervous, right? But we get through, and we go through the other side. So I'm there is a point here, but you guys can picture this, right? Well, in our lives, we have these gators, okay, that stand in our path, okay. Now this one was pretty overwhelming, but many times it just starts off with like. A three foot or two foot gator that with my paddle, I can definitely take care of. But I start to avoid the gator. Okay. Is instead of going through the inlet, I go back around. Okay. And the first time I go back around, I now ingrain a pattern in my ability to adapt or deal with this little gator. So, that the next time I come back to the inlet, the gator, he isn't any bigger, but in my mind, he becomes bigger, right? And so I then take a wider route of avoidance to, and I won't go through the path. And I keep doing this over and over again. And if I do that enough, I actually start to develop this, what we would refer to as an anxiety disorder, because This thing, the plane, the elevator, the germs, the social situations, the getting out in public, public speaking, these things become larger than they really are. Now, in my scenario, the gator was pretty big, but this little gator becomes like this 20-foot gator that the inlet only seems like it's a foot wide and there's no way through. And so every time I avoid it, it makes it harder for me to get through the passage again. right? Yeah, right. And the only way to get through those fears or to get to deal with or manage those fears is to go through them is you have to carve that path. I mean, the experienced kayakers out there, they don't even pay attention to it. They just I mean, I've, I've watched them out there when we were going the other tours. They just cruise right on by these gators. They stop and take a picture of the guy. Like, I, I, there's no way I could have done that. But if I'd gone through enough and done that six, seven, eight times, I would probably stop and take a picture. And if I really look back at the statistics and the understanding of these things, that they don't want to get in a situation with you. You know, they just want you to leave them alone. So... Anxiety are like these gators that sometimes they grow bigger and bigger in our mind, but they're still maybe just a little guy that we can, we got to go through it to conquer it. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So I hear you saying that in some sense you reinforce the fear. So every time that I avoid that thing, in a sense, I groove that, It's almost like what? Like operant conditioning right? So every time I avoid getting on an airplane, every time I avoid this or I avoid that, I have grooved that into my neural pathways to avoid it, to avoid it, to avoid it. And I I make that deeper, right?
1: Yeah, it makes it deeper. The avoidance becomes more and more. So instead of a three hour and 50 minute, now it's a eight hour redirectional path. So if you can just kind of see in this mind, kind of take a piece of paper, I'd encourage our viewers, take a piece of paper and kind of put right your fear in the middle of the paper and put a little circle around it. And then you're on the left side and you're trying to get to the other side which is your objective. Relationships, work, hobbies, interests, getting out in public. You know, there's people that are locked in their homes because of fear, right? And this the fear sits in the middle And every time you come up to that fear and you choose to go around it, the path around it will get wider and wider, and that fear will become much bigger than it really is, and you can't get to the other side of the page. And systematic desensitization, cognitive behavioral therapy, these different things that we do are really about working our way through Versus trying to go around things to conquer the anxieties.
0: Okay, Doc. So I see this with respect to behavior and action. But let me throw something out at you and tell me whether I'm off base. At a certain point, does that fear sort of leave the page and take root in our imagination? So as you're telling me this story about the gator, I might be going, man, I'm so... so freaked out by the gators i'm i'm 500 miles away from georgia and i'm thinking about the gators right like there's no where i live right now there i i still am stuck in michigan you know you escaped and you know i was great to hear you talk about getting away i'm here still but (laughs) i love it but uh the thing is i'm sitting here in the cold in michigan and there are no alligators here but i know that i could lay here tonight just thinking about alligators that are a thousand miles away right And at some point, those alligators take root in my imagination. And now I'm afraid of alligators, even though there are no alligators. I'm not avoiding, I'm not going around the other path in the swamp. I'm just now developing an irrational fear of alligators in my imagination, even though I'm not anywhere near one. And even though I'm not going to encounter one tomorrow, and even though I've never seen one, I'm now just afraid of alligators as an idea. And I, okay, we're using an example of gators, might be sharks or grizzly bears, or it might be right. germs, or it might be alien invasions, or it might be, right, whatever it is that has got you wound up. But at, certain, at a certain point, does that kind of become obsessive and take root in our imagination?
1: Yeah, and it starts to take over. This, this small two-foot gator that's on this little swamp in southern Georgia is now encompassed the whole intercontinental continental United States in my mind, right? And I can't move on with life. And that's where it goes from normal fear, anxiety, should I be scared of the gator? Yes. But it becomes irrational to the point that I cannot function. I can't move forward. You know, what is your gator that you fear, right? And when does that get to a point that it, immobilizes me or I cannot move forward or I become obsessional about things, you know, is it not good to leave, you know, your stove on? Absolutely. But do you, are you going to check your stove 500 times in a day? And I know people, I've worked with clients who have, do check their stove 500 times a day. So that takes over your Every part of your being and your autonomic nervous system now is living in sympathetic with something that, yes, is rational. You know, we don't want to leave our stove on, but I, I have to be able to let go of that at some point. Some of that is also physiologically within inside some people that certain pathways are 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 initiated. That then get attached to different things, like germs, or leaving the lights on, or leaving the iron plugged in, or those kind of things, which are these phobias. You have different classifications, too, of anxiety disorders. In the past, before the current DSM, you know, we had a bucket of anxiety, and almost everything that you can think of was in there PTSD, panic attacks, agoraphobia. But now with the new DSM5, they categorize into three categories. You have your anxiety disorders, which are like generalized anxiety. Your panic attacks are in there. Phobias are in there. Then you have get your uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders, which now have their own category that used to be a subset of anxiety disorders, but there is a unique thing going on in obsessive-compulsive disorders. And then we have our trauma and stressor-related disorders, which in the past was categorized just under anxiety, but now it has its own category. And these have different characteristics to them. So trauma and stress-related disorders that have an anxiety component, in that situation, somebody actually experienced an event, okay? They got attacked by an alligator, okay? Or they were in a war situation, or they were stuck in a trauma trauma situation where they were getting abused physically or sexually as a child. And their nervous system had to react in a sympathet- sy- highly sympathetic way to protect them. Like their nervous system wasn't gonna let them sleep because they didn't know if the trauma was gonna come again or when they, if they were gonna get hit again, you know, or abused in some type of way. So their sympathetic nervous system in these trauma disorders protected them, kind of grooved this pattern of being on high alert all the time. But now that they're out of that situation, they can't ungroove it and they're stuck in it. So something that brings back a memory like a smell or a sound or a person or a situation brings back these real events from the past into the present. That's, those, these are different categorizations of anxiety or fears. Some are brought on by real events. Some are brought on by more imagination or creating these events in our mind.
0: Doc, I've got a theory here. Tell me if I'm off base. But when we look at the acceleration of these anxiety symptoms or disorders in the population over the last 20-something It coincides with the explosion of media, social media, and all of this. And so I want to rewind the clock 100 years, 200 years. And the average person, isn't it, you know, they they have localized fears. So if you live in the Kanofi Swamp, you know, you see alligators. If you live in the Rocky Mountains, you see grizzly bears. If you live on the coast of wherever, you see sharks. But, you know, most people aren't exposed to all of these things, they, they have their local fears. Like when I've traveled around the world, things that absolutely freak me out, like you go down to, you know, I've been to jungles, different parts of the world, and I'm just creeped out by the jungle because there's all kinds of slithery, crawly snakes and stuff in there, right? And I'm real comfortable because I grew up on the coast in California. I'm real comfortable with the beach. I'm not afraid of sharks. And I'm real comfortable in the mountains with the grizzly bears because those are known things, Right. But it's all these unknown things, all these slithery, creepy things that I'm unfamiliar with, right? Well, the average person 100, 200 years ago only had the things around them and they learned to cope with them. But n- the, then what happened is we had the exposure of media. And right. now I can get pictures of alligators and pythons and, and Ebola outbreaks. and I, I And now I'm exposed to all of these things. And on my television, on my computer screen, in my timeline, on my timeline and social media feed on my phone, and I see things that really aren't anywhere near me that I'm not actually really exposed to, but they fill the media, they fill the you know the LCD screen in front of my eyes and I start developing fears of things that really aren't present. Like like I've heard people point this out and I think this is just kind of generally true. If you ask most people are you afraid of violent crime? Or is your perception that violent crime is happening all around you? Most people are like, I'm absolutely freaked out by violent crime. And then you say, have you or an immediate family member ever been the victim of a violent crime? And most people would say no. But I see it on, right. TV, but I see it on TV every night. And every night mm-hmm. there's a shooting somewhere. And so I get the perception that there are shootings everywhere. Again, I don't want to go down that argument path about shootings, or whatever, but you get my point, right? Our, so when we look at the explosion of these anxiety disorders, how much of it is exposure to things that trip our imagination and anticipation and expose us to the perception that the world is more dangerous than maybe it actually is?
1: Yeah. Or there's also a protection from not having that. There might be dangers out there, but do we have to know every single thing that's going on, you know? And I think in our sense for maybe being in too much control or knowing too much or not being able to just lean in being present with the people around us and the circle we're in, uh, because of our access to media, our brain takes in so much more than it can manage. Like I think of a few weeks ago, there was that plane crash I think in Nepal or or someplace like that like and what was amazing was somebody was taking a picture of all the different people with their iPhones that were capturing this crash I mean just iPhones all over the place in like the hills of Nepal like what in the world right like that's that's just mind-boggling that everybody would have a phone that they could pull out instantly and now all of a sudden My fear about airplanes might be going through the roof when we probably have less airline crashes than we've ever had, but our exposure to the minutia, the possibilities becomes the, that's what media does is that, and there's, you know, I'm not opposed to having the internet and that kind of things, but, but there has to be limits to this because we then can see every possible scenario that doesn't even, even in our world that we're going to experience, like in the places that we live, but yet we can see around the entire globe things are going on. And it becomes just overwhelming on our nervous systems. And we can do that at two in the morning if we want to. So, so there's, is, a,
0: there's a term for that, right? It's called doom scrolling. Yeah. <laughs> right? So you take your phone and you go your timeline, whatever, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or whatever of the news, and you doom scroll. Most people don't post happy news, right? The, the, the media isn't going to say, hey, guess what? In this little town somewhere, nothing happened today, right? right. Uh, you know, no one's going to post a story that Doc and Amy went on a kayak trip for four hours and nothing happened. Right. It's only going to be if they got eaten by the alligator or a picture of the alligator that I post. Right. Right. And so then what happens is your your feed is full of this stuff and they call it doom scrolling, just going through one thing after another, after another. And, you know, what it does is it feeds our anxiety. And when you look at the explosion of anxiety among teens, you know, adolescents, young adults it seems, I don't know, you know, coincidence isn't causality, but it seems coincidental that this is the generation raised on this kind of media.
1: Right. Like we're experiencing all this stuff vicariously through these things. And there's only so much that we have to provide limits and boundaries for ourselves. I mean, even, you know, like we know with, with little kids, Parenting-wise, we have to provide boundaries for them. Or if they feel like every time they push on the wall, it can move, okay, that's not a good thing. They need to know that when they, you know, push on the wall, that it's going to stay stable, that there's some boundaries, right? And with this never-endless stream of data, it's like there's no boundaries to our possible anxiety. And Nobody's going to protect that, protect you from that, but yourself, right? Is you, you have to have stable walls or you're going to fear that the roof is going to fall in. And so we have to be really careful with what we expose our brains and minds to in these scenarios that we're not taking in too much of the stuff and there's some boundaries around that.
0: Well, we also, I mean, going back to what you talked about in the last episode, come to your senses and what you've talked about in previous episodes many times is that at some point you have to go ground yourself in reality. You know, so if you're sitting, your doom scrolling, you know, your phone hour after hour thinking about all the alligators and diseases and plane crashes and alien invasions and, you know, who knows what else in the world that are going on. At some point, man, you got to go outside and throw a Frisbee in the yard or something Exactly. right. I mean, geez, you know, take the dog out to the park and, you know, throw a tennis ball or something because at some point you go smell the grass, you touch the ground, you feel like you're grounded in the world. I'm going to tell a story that I probably shouldn't tell, but when I was in college, I went to uh, (laughs) to the University of Colorado in Boulder and uh, I'll never forget the Pink Floyd, the wall, they made like a laser movie thing of it, like this immersive 3D thing and I remember it it came to the planetarium at uh, CU when I was a student there. And me and my friends, we were college students, you know. So anyway, we would go to the two-hour Pink Floyd thing. And it was super yeah. freaky and weird, right? Yeah. I mean, it was like mind-bending. I remember going back outside and just wanting to touch the ground. I was thinking, my friends, <laughs> I just want to go outside and like touch the ground and smell the trees and like, feel like I'm connected back to the world because that was a really weird place that we were in for the last two hours. Yes. And at some point you just have to go outside and touch the ground, smell the, smell the grass, look at, you know, right. And re-ground yourself in your senses.
1: Yeah. And you also have to realize that, you know, you know, once we put some of those limits and boundaries on ourselves, you know, how do we manage this thing? And, you know, unfortunately we're in a culture that the way that you manage all this stuff is with a chemical alteration. If I'm going too fast, I'm going to take something to slow me down. You know, it's not coincidental that we have all these anxiety disorders, but yet, and we also have a high use of marijuana. You know, I'm not, a, you know, opposed to marijuana, but I am opposed to your, you're not actually for the people who are doing nothing but that that they're just doing a chemical alteration or whether that's some other substance, alcohol or whatever, all you're doing is trying to slow down your nervous system chemically. You're never going to fix your nervous system that way. That's, you're going to get, get tolerance from that and then you're going to need more and more and you're just not going to ever deal with the problem. And that's where you know at Inner Armor and Breuer Neuroscience, we're about leveraging the power of the autonomic nervous system To work our way out of these things, to work our way out of the PTS groove that we're PTSD groove that we're in. How do we rework our nervous system? How do I work my nervous system enough that I can go through the little creek or the little channel between the alligator and the place I need to get to, which is relationships and work and enjoyment of life? You know, that isn't just a chemical thing, right? I remember in the late 80s i think it was time magazine that well that's when prozac came out and they were talking more about depression but they said you know we're going to be done with depression in the next 10 years well what happened it got worse and worse and worse the most significant thing we see right now is anxiety in our on our planet or especially in the united states look at the comfort that we experience and the technologies and the things that we don't have to worry about right? Because of technology. Why is anxiety going in one direction, but yet tech, we have all these technological things that are supposed to help us enjoy life and be less anxious. And we're not in in the middle of a war and stuff,
0: you know? Yeah. In some sense, life on this planet has never been easier. And yeah, we've never been more anxious and depressed and that disconnect. So just as we kind of wind down here and, and You know, talk about the approach of Inner Armor and Royer Neuroscience, where we begin to recondition the body to respond differently. But you put out that warning about whether we self-medicate with, you know, marijuana or alcohol or whatever it is, or we are receiving pharmaceuticals from our doctors that just keep us stuck in these loops, right? Because they never never go upstream, what we talk about all the time. They never go upstream to ask, why am I feeling this way?
1: Yeah, I, I liken, I'm not opposed to medicine to, to address things, but medicine is an ambulance that's supposed to help maybe get me through a crisis so I can get from my house to the hospital. Okay. And that I can get to the professionals to work at fixing myself. So when I have, you know, a, a heart attack or something wrong with my heart, the ambulance picks me up. It keeps me on the life support to get me to the cardiovascular surgeon, right? That's going to help me. But if the ambulance is still driving around the streets for six hours, for six days, for 60 days, for six years, I'm still driving in the ambulance and I'm not doing anything to fix my heart. The ambulance has now become a problem.
0: It's rather. It's become going back to your first anecdote of this episode. It's become a prison.
1: It's a prison, right? And I get it. Xanax helps you with your panic attacks, and I wouldn't take that away from somebody, anybody, with that. But I want to ask you: What are you doing to leverage something that's far greater than any pill that you can take, and that's the human brain? What are you doing? To use available technology we have to see what your brain is doing in real time and how to operantly condition it to be stronger, if you're not doing anything, you're going to be stuck in the ambulance. And guess what? 30 years from now, the ambulance is going to drop you off and you're still going to have the same problem because none of this fixes it. It's just a band-aid for a temporary sense of resolution.
0: Wow. Well, and as you say, Inner Armor and Royer Neuroscience are there to help us to begin to sort of get past that ambulance and to begin to actually treat, you know, as your example, to actually fix the heart, be able to fix the body and the mind and be able to improve that mind-body connection so that we are able to overcome these things and not be, as you say, continually just having to be in the ambulance or continually having to have these kind of medical or medicinal interventions and to be able to treat what's really going on. So if you'd like to learn more about that, go to forgeinnerarmor.com and you can find the ways that Dr. Royer and his team are working with elite athletes and ordinary people and everyone in between to begin to help them to perform at their potential and help you to figure out how you can reach your potential. Because as Dr. Royer says, your capacity, your ceiling is greater than you could ever imagine. And so find a way to reach that. Doctor, thank you so much for being with us again today.
1: Yes. And I want to just say one last thing is everybody out there with these major anxiety disorders, we want to help you in some way. Okay. And please lean into us. We want to be a resource for you.
0: Okay. Amen. Thanks, Doc. We'll talk to you next time. Okay. See ya. This has been the Inner Armor Podcast. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Would you please follow or subscribe and make sure to leave us a review or comment. You can learn more about Inner Armor, Dr. Royer, and how to perform at your potential by going to forgeinnerarmor.com.